I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 69 in our series, The Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus nears the end of his teaching ministry, he warns his disciples about very troubling times ahead. Somehow, these warnings have become some of the most divisive, misinterpreted, and misunderstood teachings in the New Testament. My wife Abby was telling me this week that she rarely remembers events in vivid detail, but there's a story from her childhood that so haunted her for years up until present day, she told me, I kid you not. I remember the color of the walls. I remember everything about that moment. And it goes like this. Imagine uh, younger Abby, eight years old or so, I believe, as she beholds an older woman in the church putting on lipstick in a mirror. And Abby says to the woman, I can't wait until I'm old enough to wear lipstick. This is cute, right? Think again. The woman turned to her and said, Oh, sweetie. The rapture will happen long before you're old enough to wear lipstick. Now, (laughs) the rapture, for those not hip to the lingo, is this idea of a cataclysmic end-time precursor in which Christians will be snatched up into the sky, presumably leaving behind little more than piles of clothes. The clothes don't get to come with you. Just before God turns planet Earth into a real-life post-apocalyptic horror movie. Some of you grew up with the idea all around you. Maybe you have a story like Abby's. I have a few myself. And those of us who grew up with the rapture, nearly every single one of us were terrified of the dang thing. And the way Christians described it as a good thing only made it worse. They would say, oh no, it's going to be awesome. You'll vanish in a second and appear in heaven where we'll sing worship songs forever. What? Oh, you know, just so you know, by the way, most of the world ain't coming with us. So your friends and family, most of them are going to be left behind on earth when God turns it into a living nightmare. What? And whether the rapture was a part of your upbringing or not, you may wonder where the idea came from. In fact, even avid readers of the Bible may ask the question because it's easy to miss. Uh, even proponents of the rapture will admit that the idea is taken from only two, maybe three, depending on who you ask, short passages in the New Testament. And we are about to read one of them. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Lots of ground to cover tonight, today, whenever you're watching this. Remember time. Anyway, let's get to work. Do me a favor, guys, on a serious note. Uh, I realize that we're all sick of YouTube. We're all sick of Zoom calls. Believe me, I'm right there with you. But please remember that you're not just showing up for yourself. You're doing this for the rest of your community as well. When you give it your best shot, when you try to participate, when you try to be present and active, even though you're sick of it, you actually help the rest of your community learn and grow as well. So the plan for the next little bit is to work our way through the entire chapter and we'll talk about the rapture, we'll talk about conspiracy, COVID-19, and the end of the world. So let's give it a shot. You guys ready? Matthias, you ready? Kaylee, do you have your Bible? Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and uh, to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
Now, just before this story in chapter 23, where we left off last week, Jesus pronounced judgment on the temple establishment, the people who run the thing. And now he's saying that even the physical location of the temple is going to suffer physical consequences. At this point in the Bible story, the temple had already been destroyed once by Babylon, but Herod, remember him from the Christmas story? Same guy. He had begun to rebuild it. And it was a marvel of the ancient world. It had walls that were up to 165 feet high, which was an architectural, architectural, architectural feat unheard of in the first century. And Jesus is not impressed. He called it a barren fig tree. He said it was fruitless, corrupt. It is going to fall, in this case, literally. And it's not just uh, some kind of wise metaphorical thing from Jesus. That actually happened. Here Jesus is predicting the literal destruction of the temple, which some 40 years after he said this came to pass. In 70 AD, the Roman army captured Jerusalem and destroyed both the city and its temple. Jesus said, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Again, not a metaphor. It really happened. What's left of the temple, the stones that were thrown down, like Jesus said, are still there. You can go see them. I did. Now, that's a huge thing to predict. So in verse 3, naturally, we read, As Jesus was putting or sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, saying the temple would be destroyed was a, a cataclysmic end times type of thing. It's like someone saying, you know, America is a relatively young global superpower and global superpowers, historically, they typically fall at some point. So America will be reduced to nothing. Something like that could happen and history would probably just soldier on. But to the modern American ear, something like that sounds to us like the end of the world. So naturally, his disciples are like, uh, when? When is that? If that's going to happen, when? How will we know? What should we do about it? And make sure you get this. What we're about to read is an answer to that question. Now, this is crucial. If you think back to the series and practice we just completed in our communities learning to read the scriptures, one of those practices was study. And one of the proposed methods of study was all about context. So try this one on for size. Jesus tells his disciples that the temple will be destroyed. And his disciples ask him, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in context, what is this? As in, when will this happen? It's the destruction of the temple. So everything Jesus is about to say is an answer to that question. Now, why is that crucial? Because this chapter, and really the one that follows as well, are among the most notoriously stripped of their context and twisted into a new weird shape so that it's about something else entirely. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, something that actually happened in 70 AD, but this chapter has been widely read to describe something that hasn't even happened yet, namely, the end of the world. And it's not just problematic because it blatantly ignores the specific context of the passage, but because all throughout the Bible or the New Testament, when Jesus does talk about the end of the story, he describes it as a redemption, as restoration, as the renewal of all things. So let's read Jesus' answer to the question about the destruction of the temple. Verse 4, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. 
So Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. That's the first in uh, among several warnings to come. This one is about fake messiahs. Again, not a metaphor. We know from history that Jesus was right. There were all sorts of would-be messiahs who attempted to lead Israel in failed rebellions against Rome. Thutis is one mentioned by both Acts, which is in the Bible, and by Josephus, who is a historian outside of the Bible. And he gathered a following for himself to rebel against Rome around 46 AD. Another famous one, Barcoba, led a small uprising against Rome in 132. So all that to say, Jesus was right. It did happen, just like he said it would. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. The metaphor of birth pain shows up all throughout the Hebrew scriptures to describe a painful period that gives way to new life. Remember that for later. Verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus warns his disciples of coming hardship and suffering. They will be singled out for persecution specifically because they follow Jesus. And once again, they were. Millions of Jesus' disciples were put to death across the following three centuries. Christians couldn't win for losing at this point. They were hated by everybody. Rome hated Christians because they went around saying, Jesus is Lord, meaning in essence, Caesar is not Lord. That's a dangerous thing to say. And the Jews hated Christians, even though most Christians at this point were Jews, because they saw them as collaborators with the oppressor. Now, why in the world would they think that? Well, specifically because the early church for hundreds of years was unanimous in its understanding and application of Jesus' teaching on nonviolence. So today we have this whole, like, is it okay for a Christian to serve in the military debate? But for centuries, that wasn't even a conversation or a question. In the dangerous and violent world of the first century, disciples of Jesus were absolutely, absolutely unanimous in their view that it was never permissible under any circumstances to do violence to another person, friend or enemy, in anger or self-defense, at home or as a soldier. That's not Josh's wacky position. That's a fact of church history. So early followers of Jesus refused to go to war for Rome or against Rome, and thus they were hated by both sides. So Jesus says, look, everyone is going to hate you guys because of me. If you actually listen to the things I tell you to do, people are not going to like it. People are going to bail out. You will be persecuted. And if you read the book of Acts in the New Testament, and if you really, if you thumb through history, you can see that these things actually happen. So when Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, He's not talking about the end as in the end times. He's talking about the end of this specific dark period of violent persecution in a certain place and time and amongst a certain group of people. But then things get weirder. Watch this, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. 
How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter when travel is dangerous or on the Sabbath when you will be ill-prepared. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Now the, the whole abomination of desolation thing is actually just like Jesus said. It's not a secret. It's a quote from the prophet Daniel. And Daniel... It's a prophecy about a pagan king called Antiochus Epiphanes who invaded Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple by slaughtering pigs, which was an unclean animal in Jewish theology, on the altar. So Jesus is saying, remember that horrifying thing from Daniel? Well, something like that is going to happen again. Now, we're not really sure exactly what Jesus was referring to, even in hindsight at this point, because several things that might qualify came to pass. Many think that Jesus was probably foreseeing the invasion of Jerusalem in AD 70 when General Titus sacrificed to the pagan gods on the Temple Mount before he destroyed it. We're not really sure. I think in, uh, I, I never read the books, but Patrick did read the Left Behind books, and he told me, isn't there some kind of weird thing where he like rides in on a pig, the Antichrist rides on a pig or something like that? Yeah. And then what, he slaughters the pig in the temple? Yeah. So it's very similar to the Daniel thing, I guess. <laughs> So anyway, it probably wasn't, it wasn't that. Uh, <laughs> it was something else. Point is, Jesus said to them, when whatever this thing is that's like the thing in Daniel, whenever it happens, you'll know it, get out. There's a time to stay, there's a time to persevere, even die for the way of Jesus, and there's a time to run for your life. Don't even gather your things, Jesus says, run for it. The invasion of Jerusalem is, for us anyway, so far removed from that time and place, it's near unimaginable. There was rampant slaughter and rape and brutality against men, women, and children. Josephus documented that thousands were crucified during that time. Horrifying. So Jesus says, listen, it's going to be so bad. Do not stay and fight. Don't die for your country. Run. And even if you wanted to fight, God is not on your side. Jesus pronouncement of judgment isn't so much like, hey, listen, you didn't do what God said, so God is going to make this awful thing happen. It's actually really logical if you follow the story. Israel has rejected the way of the peaceful kingdom that Jesus came to bring, and they will insist on the road of violent revolt against Rome. And so within those natural consequences, the temple is going to fall. Things are going to be really bad. The thing about war is that most of the time, everyone fighting thinks that they're on the right side of the fight. But even if you were right, Jesus demands his followers reject violence, turn the other cheek, and love their enemies. So either way, don't stay and fight, run. And he goes on, verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, even if possible, the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Now, that term elect, unfortunately, has kind of been co-opted and repurposed by a certain branch of the Christian tradition to mean something other than what it means here. In the Jewish mind, the elect were the true people of God, so they were the faithful people, another way of saying the righteous which makes a lot of sense in context. For the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. God has to intervene in some way to preserve the faithful or else there would be no one faithful to Yahweh left. Verse 26, So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. 
For as lightning that comes from, east, from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. So cool. Then in verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, listen close to the wording here. Jesus says, immediately after those days of distress, and we get this quote from the prophet Isaiah, it belongs to a genre of biblical literature called apocalyptic, which is a type of Jewish literature that used heavily symbolic imagery to communicate God's perspective on events in history so that the reader would remember these things in light of how God says the story eventually ends. Now, we've been learning and relearning that Jesus and the biblical authors use all kinds of genres and metaphors and symbolism to say very true things. So Jesus doesn't intend to quote Isaiah as a means of describing literal coming events, the sun going out and the stars falling down and all that, but to highlight with symbols exactly how catastrophic this real time in history would be. We actually have micro versions of similar things in the here and now. We say things like, I'm falling apart, or we say things like, I have a splitting headache. These figurative, hyperbolic word pictures emphasize the seriousness of our distress with imagery that we understand and take for granted is not literal. So I like to do this butthead thing uh, by constantly acknowledging the misuse of the word literally, and I'll behave as if I actually believe everyone is using it correctly, and I just have no idea that they don't know how to say it the right way. So a while back, my sister-in-law Hannah told me that someone literally bit her head off, and I went, oh my God! <laughs> I said it was a butthead thing to do. Stop judging me, Terry. But, <laughs> but that is, I bring that up because that is, in effect, what has happened to Jesus' quotation of Isaiah over time? Oh my God, the sun will go out. And again, it's probably because we can scarcely wrap our minds around just how catastrophic the fall of the temple would have been for the people of Israel. So try to imagine it a different way. Imagine someone visits us in a time machine from the future and warns us, hey, in the future, America is invaded, the government falls, society collapses, and your way of life as you know it comes to an end. And then they use some kind of like allegorical or metaphorical expressions to give it weight. They say something like, it will be like the world is ending. Or, you know, what people say all the time now, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, it's going to be like a zombie apocalypse. I hear that one a lot. And we hear this, the people of the present, we hear this from the guy in the future, and we cry out, a zombie apocalypse is coming? It's going to be the end of the world? And the guy from the future is like, what? No, that's not what I said. What I said was, and we're like, oh my God, zombies? My point being, you have to actually stay with Jesus in his context and in his genre. He goes on in verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Oh my gosh, there was the rapture thing. But... You have to wait because we've got to do some other work first. We'll come back to that, I promise. Some people are excited and others are like, what? <laughs> who cares? But anyway, so Jesus goes on with this whole uh, son of man coming on the clouds stuff, not referring to the literal end of the world, but it's yet again another apocalyptic quote, this time from Daniel 7. 
And it's about the coming of this mysterious figure called the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favorite names for himself. But Daniel 7 is about the coming of the Son of Man, not to earth, but to God, which sounds weird, I know, but stay with me on this. Clouds in the Hebrew scriptures typically symbolize an appearance of God. If you think all the way back to, you know, Israel in the desert and the cloud that, you know, that followed them and the presence of God, all that stuff, it's called a theophany, an appearance of God. So Daniel 7 isn't about the second coming of the Son of Man. It's about the vindication of this figure called the Son of Man. Meaning, Jesus is saying that when all this crazy temple destruction stuff comes true, and it will, all the stuff that seems totally unbelievable now, when it comes true, he, Jesus, will again be proven to be who he claimed to be. He will be vindicated by God. So gathering the elect means those who see Jesus for who he really is will come to faith and follow him when they understood that, hey, this guy actually told the truth. And he goes on in verse 32. Now learn this lesson from, lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened so here's another great way, a secret trick amongst us uh, Bible enthusiasts. Secret way of recognizing this text refers to events that have already happened. Jesus explicitly says so. <laughs> Jesus tells them point blank, this generation will not pass away before these things happen. Not in the futuristic space age, but pretty soon. A few decades from the time he said these things, to be exact. Which is why he's telling them this stuff. When you see these things, them, the twelve, and he adds in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, heaven and earth in this context may have been a Jewish idiom for the temple, which was, remember, a place where God's actual presence invaded earth, where heaven and earth touched, and it's going to be gone. It's going to fall, not one stone left on another. It will pass away. But Jesus' words, he claimed, would live on. And once again, he was totally right. They have. The temple was destroyed, but here we are still reading, discussing, studying, finding truth and life in the words of Jesus. Now, we're almost there, and I haven't forgotten the rapture thing. Stay with me, Jessica Kingray. Wake Tyson up. Is he awake? All right, we'll move on. Now, the vast majority of scholarship is in agreement over the first half of this chapter in that it speaks to events that have long come and gone. But more debate enters the picture when we get to verse 36. Look how it begins. But about that day. Now, but about in Greek, we're, we're shifting gears here. This is a new topic. But on to this other thing. And it's about that day. Now, don't miss the seemingly simple couplet of words. If you're getting used to reading your New Testament, this should kind of perk your ears. That day is a stock Jewish term that refers to what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, which is a way of describing the climax of human history, the end of the story, in other words. We actually saw it already in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, it's in 1 Corinthians 3, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light, day with a capital D. 2 Timothy 4, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It's all over the place. Lots of debate about the specifics of that day, the, the nuanced stuff, the, the little details. 
But pretty much everyone agrees that when you put together the full biblical picture, you get at least these four elements, and we're in agreement on these. The Messiah's appearing, the resurrection of the dead, the righteous to life, the wicked to destruction, and you have judgment where God sets the world to rights. He puts an end to injustice and evil and suffering and sin and death forever. And finally, you have the healing of the cosmos, the new heaven and the new earth. Now, that day could happen like in the span of a literal 24-hour day, or it could be like an extended period in history. Who knows? But what the heck does that day in the future have to do with the destruction of the temple in AD 70? Or more specifically for our purposes at the moment, what does the beginning of chapter 24 have to do with the end of chapter 24? Look at it this way. You can read the Bible from left to right with a kind of imaginary red timeline that moves across the narrative from the beginning to the end. But you can also read stories within the text as kind of made up of splintering dotted red lines that fracture into recurring patterns and motifs throughout the story, which sounds abstract, I know. But what I mean is that Jesus is saying these kinds of things happen. A friend of mine says it this way, it happened, it happens, and it will happen, which is why, my God, the words of Jesus in the first century foretelling the events of 70 AD still sound like he's describing our world climate right now. It's why many are still hunting prophecies, signs of the time, and clinging to conspiracies, but we'll get to that in a bit. The point is, it happened, it happens, and it will happen. So though Jesus wasn't describing the end of the world for the first stretch of chapter 24, he is saying that a coming time of calamity for them in that time and place won't be the final time of calamity. It will happen again. In fact, that day, the cataclysmic conclusion to the story will be in many ways very similar. It's actually kind of obvious if you look closely. Look at the way Jesus uses the events of the past. He takes prophecies from Daniel, prophecies Isaiah, long before his time, and he uses those quotations and stories to describe something that is coming in his disciples' time. And then he uses his own description of a specific event in his not-so-distant future to describe a coming event in our future that still hasn't happened yet. So that's the connection. Jesus is pointing to his near future and to a future far beyond that one. So, Back to verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So there's a huge difference in what Jesus is saying about this further future, this other time. It's not like the whole temple thing, because the first one, the destruction of the temple, you'll see that coming. You can forecast it. There are all kinds of warnings you can look for. This other day, that day, you won't know. I don't even know, Jesus says. Jesus, who in Paul's language made himself nothing, he has set aside the omnis, all the omnis. So God, for instance, is omnipresent. He's all places at once. But Jesus is in one place at a time. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But Jesus gets tired. He has to eat and rest. He even dies. God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything that there is to be known. But Jesus has to ask questions. The text specifically says that he grows in wisdom and he doesn't know the day or the hour. Now, weirdly, despite the fact that Jesus himself openly admits his ignorance of the exact time, an entire wing of the church is absolutely obsessed 
with tracking political forecasts and connecting prophetic dots and working desperately to pinpoint that day and hour that Jesus himself does not know. What a tragic waste of time. That to say, Matthew 24 is not an invitation to track the signs and crack the code and pinpoint the hour. It is a warning to avoid that very thing. Then, watch this, it gets crazier. Look at verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Okay, so at this point, we, we can't avoid the rapture thing any longer. Uh, so here we go. The rapture, if you don't know, is at the center of a certain way of reading the Bible called dispensational premillennialism. So in this line of thinking, we live in the present, and the world is just sort of getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and it's going to continue to get worse. That often feels like a tenable position given the unprecedented access we have to the news media and the fact that the for-profit news media has a propensity to capitalize on fear and outrage. That's the stuff that we click on. Why does it often feel like the world is in a downward spiral of chaos and evil and destruction? Because that's all we hear about on the news. But just flip through a history book and you'll see it's less of a downward spiral and it's more of an oscillating pattern. I'm sure things felt even more catastrophic in 70 AD when Jerusalem was laid to waste, thousands of people crucified. The pandemic that we're in right now, it feels really bad, but it probably felt worse during the bubonic plague. Political tension is obviously horrible. Few people would deny that. But it was also very bad in World War II Europe, circa 1940. Murmurings of conspiracy are everywhere right now, but they might have been even more prevalent during the Cold War of the 80s. Some feel, with good reason, as if racial tension and disunity and injustice is at an all-time high right now, but maybe less so someone who lived through the 60s. Some feel as if sexual immorality and progressive sex ethics and pornography have made ours the most perversive culture in history, perversive, the most perverse culture in history, But we didn't live in first century Corinth with with temple prostitutes and political leaders who were also open pederasts. I'm sure that seemed a lot worse. So it can seem like the world is always getting worse, but really it kind of oscillates. But in rapture theology, eventually everything gets so bad that just before the whole thing is about to implode from its old badness, Jesus will return in something called the rapture. There's a trumpet, like we just read in Matthew 24. Jesus appears literally in the clouds, and those who follow Jesus are caught up to join him in the sky, sort of uh, beamed up, if you will. We then join Jesus in heaven. Meanwhile, back on earth, God pours out his wrath for seven agonizing years, all kinds of insane stuff, nuclear holocaust, post-apocalyptic nightmare stuff. It's based on a very literal reading of the book of Revelation, which is, again, symbolic, apocalyptic literature. Then, seven years of tribulation are up. Two-thirds of Israel is dead at this point. Bad guys are about to win. But lo, Jesus shows up, rut-row, with the church. This time, it's like an army. He rules and reigns for a literal thousand years. When the millennium is over, Satan gets set loose from this pit where he's been kept at this point in the story, and he ushers in all-out cosmic war that's called Armageddon. 
Armageddon, that's where that word comes from. Satan, demons, and everyone set against God go to war against Jesus, and they lose. Spoiler alert, Satan goes to hell, and the world as we know it is destroyed. Then Jesus and his people all go back up to heaven. Weird, wild stuff. Now, the word rapture isn't actually in the Bible. It comes from the Latin raptus, and it just means caught up or snatched away for obvious reasons. When you're working with theology and biblical interpretation, and you learn that a certain point of view is divisive or controversial, a great question to ask is, where did this view come from? Is it historical? Who in church history has held this view, and why, or why not? So, the, rap, the doctrine of the rapture is about 190 years old. It's extremely new in church history. Prior to 1830, no one believed in, argued for, or had even thought of the modern doctrine of the rapture. But then in the 19th century, specifically in Ireland, there was a fascination with the second coming of Jesus, and as is the case with many today, there were some convinced that it was happening any second back in 1830. Oopsie! So during a prayer meeting amongst amongst some charismatic Christians in uh, Ireland in 1830, there was a prophetic word about a rapture and about how actually Jesus' followers are literally going to be called up into the clouds to meet Jesus. First time anyone proposed this idea. Now, listen to me on this one. In Bible and theology, there is a general rule that when a view, a new theological biblical perspective is very new, that's a red flag. Now, that doesn't mean that a new uh, point of view is always false, but newness is a flashing red light warning us to be careful. When for 2,000 years of church history and theology and academia and scholarship, no one has thought of this, no one has taught this, no one has caught on to this, the odds of it being correct are not in its favor. doesn't mean that it's always wrong, but the odds are not in its favor. So... The whole rapture thing didn't take off right away until, that is, it was picked up in America by a dude called John Darby, and then it was included in something called the Schofield Bible, which was one of the earliest study Bibles, and it got popularized in America. From that, a novel was released in 1970 by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth, and then the Left Behind books followed suit in the 90s. How many of those things were there? Patrick, you remember? I don't remember. I didn't read them all. He didn't read them all, so forget it. Some fan over here. (laughs) and that's why you will be left behind that's okay we're in the weeds so this really new doctrine that came from such a specific moment in place through a chain of really weird events caught on in the american church in some movements and denominations more than others the calvary chapel movement for example many of you know has this idea as one of their core doctrines my wife, Abby, grew up steeped in the whole thing, believing and thinking, being, hearing all the time. Any day now, you won't even get old enough to wear lipstick. That's how soon the rapture is coming. As a Southern Baptist, I grew up in the same environment. And some of us felt growing up as if the rapture was just a thing everyone believed. But really, this is a minority position in both the modern and in the historical church. Now, even avid proponents of the rapture thing concede that there are probably only two passages in the Bible that mention it. There's one in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the other one is right here in Matthew 24. So we just read the whole bit about two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other one will be left left behind. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. But when you look at the context of the entire passage, being taken is a bad thing. 
If you're a first century Jew and it's that day, you don't want to be taken. You want the Messiah to come and to rule and reign over Jerusalem and over the world. So this is either, we think, Jesus' way of describing an image of General Titus' siege of Jerusalem. You know, you don't want to be there when the invasion happens to be taken by the oppressors, the invaders. Or it could be about the second coming, about judgment. And still, taken is not a good thing. You've seen the movies. There's three of them. Taken is not a good thing. Now, why take this whole detour into rapture theology, history of the view, and all that? Because this is where we're going with this whole chapter, really. We're about to see before we end that Jesus is calling his disciples to a specific kind of preparedness. But if you buy into this other take on the future, it, all, it has all kinds of detrimental effects on your discipleship in the present. It produces, I would argue personally, a, uh, the wrong kind of preparedness. So the very bad reputation that Christians have for not caring about the environment, for example, for not caring about the animal kingdom, for not caring about creation, I think that comes almost entirely from the idea that, hey, we're getting out of here eventually, so who cares about ecology and taking care of the creation? It also screws up your missiology, how you share the gospel, making it turns the gospel into always and only about saving the soul rather than also about doing justice and renewal in the here and now. And it eventually bankrupts your soteriology, which is your, just your theology of salvation. If what happens at the end of the story is that God takes our souls to heaven, blows up the world, well, then what about the healing of the world that God made? What about resurrection? What about the renewal of all things that Jesus talked about? So in Matthew 24, Jesus is warning his disciples to prepare for something serious, inevitable suffering, and he does talk about the, uh, that day, a coming day on the horizon, judgment, all that stuff. But the kind of preparedness into which he invites his disciples is very different. And to make this point, Jesus the artist tells a short story. Let's just finish the chapter, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Very truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. Jesus, the artist, using shocking, violent imagery of dismemberment to make his point. This, in other words, is very serious stuff. You and I have limited periods in life before one of two things will arrive. The first we can often foresee, and it will happen in our lifetime, and that's suffering or tragedy, something that messes the good stuff up, something that disrupts the peace. We're in one of those seasons now. The other inevitability in the Bible story is something that we can't possibly predict, nor are we supposed to try. And it may or may not come in this lifetime or in this generation or in the next generation, but it is coming, and that's judgment, justice, that day. So the question the reader is left asking from this chapter is, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? What do we do so that the inevitability of suffering and judgment are also infused with meaning and purpose and even goodness. Remember Jesus' metaphor of birth pains. We, we can live in such a way that even our most trying, difficult, painful seasons 
conclude in new life? What do we do with the time that we have? Well, the answer is, and to use Jesus' parable and the imagery in it, your job. Do your job. The parable is of a servant who has been left with a task. What is yours? Or alternatively, what is not your job? Do less of that. Are you wasting your time? Are you wasting your life? As disciples of Jesus, we all have kind of common tasks that all of us are responsible for to do justice in the world, to preach the gospel, and on down the list. But then as unique creations of the Father, we have unique tasks as well. Your job and responsibility to just be uh, responsible with the things entrusted to you, your vocation and calling, the things that God made you to do, and the things that the tasks that God expects you to complete. You have a kingdom role, how you fit into Jesus' vision of renewal in the world. And you have a church role as well, how God has asked you to contribute to the life of his community, to, more, to be more than a consumer, someone who takes only, but to give someone who, to be someone who gives to the life of the community. So do your assigned task well as if there is no guaranteed future and as if you do not have all the time in the world because either great tragedy, great distress, or even that day could be on the immediate horizon. Who knows? And either way, you have responsibilities. Things are pretty weird right now. I rarely watch or read the news on purpose anyway. Sometimes someone hands me something. And even I, with this limited exposure, feel as if I'm being inundated with images of murder and more and more police brutality and racism and political infighting. And then on top of that, there's all the conspiracy hunting. And it's just a real crap show out there right now. And it's not realistic to assume that we can or even should just take all these things in stride. Hey, the end is still to come, so just keep, you know, soldier on. We should be outraged by racism and police brutality. We are the people of Jesus. We are to abhor and decry these things. And it's okay to grieve the insanity of the pandemic. It's bad for a lot of people. Everyone is hurting in lots of different ways. But without a paradigm for the inevitability of suffering or without a paradigm of an end yet to come, we can often kind of coil in on ourselves and sort of just drift through the haze of it all. I see it all the time. I hear people say, man, I just feel so anxious. And I say, okay, okay well, what will you do? Nothing. I feel so outraged by everything going on. Okay, well, what will you do? Instagram. I feel frustrated. I feel lost. I feel aimless and agitated. What will you do about those things? I don't know. I guess I'll figure it out later. Later might not be in the cards. And I'm not talking about fiery Baptist preacher, judgment day is coming, you know, that kind of thing. I'm talking about you are going to die. And we'll often do anything to avoid reality. The conspiracy obsession, for example, and the end times hobby horse, it, it bleeds into what the New Testament calls divination, which was the practice of seeking wizards and mediums to gather divine knowledge about the future. Or it bleeds into the New Testament's condemnation of Gnosticism creeping into the church, which was the obsession with secret and hidden knowledge. And many people are scrambling for that secret knowledge, that divine knowledge, and in on what's coming, the truth behind all the secrets, because ultimately it, they want control. But you don't have it. And all the YouTube documentaries and right-wing Facebook posts or all the rebuttals to those documentaries and Facebook posts will not give you control. You don't know 
So just do what you are supposed to do. Do your job, in other words. See to your responsibilities. This warning word was intended for a certain group in order to prepare them for a certain time. But that doesn't mean that this apocalyptic picture has nothing to say to us in the here and now. We should expect suffering and persecution as well. Escapism is an ever-popular means of dealing with the inevitability of suffering. It's why I think personally the rapture uh, became such a popular invention. The idea, think about it, is that Jesus is coming to take us away from all this. So you don't have to work to drag glimpses of renewal into the present. This world will pass away. Hunker down, wait it out, and we will get out of here. But suffering in the mind of Jesus can be like birth pain, brutality followed by new life. It's not the end of the world, but it is the end of a world, and it's coming one way or another. The question to ask from this text is this, how can we wake up from spiritual sluggishness? Don't be lazy. Deal with your stuff. Do you have trauma and brokenness that you're refusing to deal with? Make your first appointment with a counselor or a therapist when this video is over. Is your marriage suffering? Call the counselor. Talk to the people in your community. Bring them into the conversation. Don't wait for things to be perfect or for everyone to become best friends. That's why your community, imperfect though they may be, is there to learn to carry one another's burdens. Go to them. Reach out to us, your pastors and church leadership. It's one of the reasons we're here, for spiritual direction, for prayer, to listen and walk with you as best as we can, and then to direct you to therapists again after that. Are you languishing in idleness, giving the same update all the time? I know I should be doing more. I know I should be in the scriptures, but I'm just not doing it. I watch Netflix and I look at my phone. Bring these things to your community and ask for accountability. Don't just think about making changes. Make them. And here's the biggest one. Bring these things before God. This is a scary thing to do. And ask Him to empower you for a new season of life. Be brave enough to say to God, do what it takes to change me. Because you and I are going to face some season of tragedy at some point. Another one. I mean, we're in one now. And we will die eventually. We will stand in judgment. And like the servant in Jesus' story, God will ask why you did not do the work entrusted to you. And I want that reality to inform the things I'm doing right now, not compelled by fear at all, but empowered by the truth. God has given me work to do. I want to do that work. I want to spend less time on the things that aren't that work. I want to deal with the root stuff, the deep stuff that's keeping me from that work. Jesus does not intend to panic you. He wants to bring you into life, life to the fullest. And when we realize what's true about ourselves and about the future, we are free to be the people God made us to be. Every second counts. I want to put down my phone and do the things Jesus asked me to do. I want to shake off spiritual laziness and do the hard work of emotional healthiness and confront the difficult things of life, my own personality, my own brokenness, my own story. I want to 
live fully into my God-given roles. I want to be the husband and the father that God asked me to be. I want to be the friend that God asked me to be. I want to find anything and everything set against me becoming those things, and I want to deal with them and put them to death in the name of Jesus. Not later, now. What is later? It may not come. I have seen the truth, and I know that many of you guys have seen the truth as well. I don't want to waste time with lies, not because I'm scared, but because I want the better thing. I can't be alone in that. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.